This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Among us with an appreciation for 70s music, uh, you may well have picked up on the pun inherent <laughs> to the title of this message, maybe not. Um, for those of you who didn't pick up on the pun, uh, in 1976, a rock group called Boston <laughs> put out a hit, and it was titled More Than a Feeling. Yeah, some of you recognize it now. And there you go, today's message title, which I sincerely hope isn't the like best thing about the message, uh, is more than a healing. And as corny as that may seem, my hope is that as we dig into this deep study together, that we'll come to the realization um, that in this story we have more than a healing going on. Certainly, there is a healing in today's story. But if we stop there, then I think we stop short. If we dig a little bit deeper, deep enough, I think we hit some pay dirt. And so we're just going to start that way. We're going to start by looking at our focal passage today. It's Mark 1, 21 to 28. And we're starting with verse 21. And here's my translation. It says, uh, and they entered into Capernaum and straight away. On the Sabbaths, notice it's plural, on the Sabbaths, or you could translate it Sabbath days, on the Sabbaths after he entered into the synagogue, he continued teaching. And as you know, uh, one of the key principles when we're looking at Mark's gospel is location is everything. So for the first time in our story in Mark's gospel, we hear of this place named Capernaum. Now, before we go too far, let me point out just the first Two words here, though, and they, and they, you see it, and they. Who is the they referring to? Well, you got to go back to the previous verses, the previous episode, the previous part of the story to figure that out. And if you listened last week, uh, you'll know that the they is Jesus and the four fishermen that he called, namely two sets of brothers, right? The first set was Andrew and Simon Peter. And the second set was James and John. And so on our map, there you go, uh, here's the Sea of Galilee. We saw this last week divided into fourths. And Capernaum, you can see up there on the left top under religious Jews, it's in the northwest corner or quarter. The quarter of the religious Jews known for its abundance of religious Jews. And over in the northeast quadrant, you can see that there right near the top, is a town called Bethsaida. Or some people say Bethsaida. Either way. But that is actually where the four fishermen grew up. The ones we just talked about. That's where the four fishermen were originally from. Bethsaida. And that means that they had to cross that dividing line that I drew down the center of our map here from one quadrant 
to get into the other. To go from Bethsaida to Capernaum, they had to go across that dividing line. Now, here's something I didn't mention last week. That northeast quadrant, right, with Bethsaida in its territory, or Bethsaida, is in the territory of Herod Philip. Okay, he's one of King Herod the Great's sons. Um, and we, we've been talking about his brother, Herod Antipas, right? And Capernaum, as you can see, is in the quadrant or the territory of Herod Antipas. And so the question immediately comes to mind for me when I'm hearing this story is, why did the fishermen move from one quadrant to the other? Or why did the fishermen move from the territory of Herod Philip to Herod Antipas? And so maybe as just regular average Bible readers, we're not thinking along those lines. But to an ancient person, when they heard this story about these boys from Bethsaida over in Capernaum, people are going to be wondering why they crossed over, why they moved. And so I think the answer has to do with taxes, believe it or not, or tolls. And so here's where we really need to grab hold of a super important point. The Sea of Galilee, you got to hear me when I say this, right? Because so much of the story is going to take place around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is what we call a Roman pay lake. Okay? Um, what that means is that Rome, the Roman Empire, oversaw the lake. It also means that the fishermen, they had to pay a toll, a tax, to fish on that lake. And for every single fish that was caught, they had to pay a tax on it. They had to pay to dock their boats on that lake and to put their boats in on that lake. And here's the other thing. If you caught something in one territory... So, for example, uh, if you caught something in the territory of Herod Philip and you took it across to the territory of Herod Antipas, you're going to pay an additional tax. If you caught something in the territory of Herod Antipas and you took it over into the territory of Herod Philip, you're going to pay that same tax. It's an additional tax. So it seems to me that the fishermen, they move from one part of the lake, Bethsaida, over to the other part of the lake, where maybe there's better fishing, so that they don't have to pay this additional tax. It's a means of saving money. It's an effort to alleviate some of their being taxed. They move to Capernaum from Bethsaida, and these fishermen, they set up shop there. That's where they run their business out of. And if you go to Capernaum today, Archaeologists have actually uncovered a fish market, an ancient fish market that used to exist in Capernaum. They found all kinds of fishing gear and fish hooks and all kinds of things. And so Capernaum actually became really, really well known at this time for its fishing industry. Uh, they, there's a major road. You can uh, sort of see some of the dotted lines there that people would be on just to pass through. Capernaum sat on a road and people would stop in Capernaum to get fish for their journey, to eat. And it became known for its salted fish, which they started exporting out to different parts of the Galilee and maybe beyond. So in Hebrew, right, this place called Capernaum is actually called Kafarnahum, 
which that's our word of the week, Kafar Nahum, which can mean village of Nahum or covered village or protected village or consolation village or comfort village, which if you're on a main road and you want passersby to stop in, it's pretty good to have a place named Comfort Village, right? And so when we enter Capernaum or Kafar Nahum in the story, ancient hearers would have known what that meant. And we're supposed to know what that means. We're entering into this place that's supposed to be a place of comfort, a place of protection. We've got you covered. Or theologically speaking, God's got you covered. You're safe for a night here. You can get your belly full for a night here. So remember that. God's got you covered. And so Jesus and these fishermen, they enter covered village, comfort village. God's got them. But here's something else I didn't say last week, and it ties in to what I was just saying about the Lake of Galilee being a Roman pay lake. When Jesus goes and he calls those fishermen, Hang on to this point. When Jesus goes and he calls those fishermen and he says, hey, fishermen, y'all follow me. One thing, one result of that, one thing he's doing, he's pulling business away, money away from the Roman economy. And if you want to put a target on your back, you can go ahead and try that. Try pulling money away from the Roman economy. But that's not all, right? Jesus comes along and he says, he's not just pulling people away. He's saying, follow me. But then he says, I'm starting a new business. Starting a new business. We're going we're gonna to fish for people. And so if you're Rome and you hear Jesus, he shows up and he starts pulling people away from the lake. You're losing money for that. It kind of raises some eyebrows if you're Roman. But if you're Rome and you hear that, and you hear that in conjunction with Jesus starting his own business, wait, in Roman territory, wait, and he didn't get approval from the Roman government for it, then Jesus winds up in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire. And something I want you to notice in the first three chapters of Mark is this, that the target Jesus has on his back, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger every time he does something or says something. And now our text says that Jesus and the fishermen, they enter covered village, comfort village. And they enter into the synagogue on the Sabbaths, plural. It's hard to say in the plural, Sabbaths. Um, but this means many Sabbaths. I really got to like try to say that. Many Sabbaths, not just one, many. Say it with me, many Sabbaths. Let's go. Many Sabbaths. See, now you can feel for me, right? Many Sabbaths. Um, so he, he kept going. He kept doing this. this. This was something he kept doing. It's indicated by the end of the verse, he kept teaching. So this was his custom, yeah? Man, these fan, this fan is like on me. This was his custom. He would have had to have been invited into that local synagogue to teach. Somebody had to invite him. Someone from the leadership there would have had to invite him. And here's what Mark says next. Here's a translation. And they continued being amazed by his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not 
as the scribes. So this isn't a first for Jesus, him teaching there, and it isn't a first for the listeners. They've been there with him before. But this is our first glance into the synagogue in Capernaum. And here, by the way, is a shot uh, of the synagogue area that we're talking about. Uh, researchers believe that this is actually a later building and that the one that Jesus taught in is sort of under the rubble of this, right? But perhaps it looks something like this. Here's another view too. And in this one, you can actually see down in the bottom right corner of this picture the place that's traditionally identified as Peter's home, Simon Peter's home. It's right next door to the synagogue. And this is a, a beloved site to many people, this home of Peter, maybe is Peter's mother-in-law's home, but Peter's family. Some people actually think Jesus lived right there too, maybe with the fishermen, uh, that James and John maybe also lived there too. I'm actually more inclined to think that Jesus had his own home in Capernaum or Capernaum, uh, but we're gonna, we'll talk about that later um, and discuss Jesus' housing options <laughs> at a later date. But these people... In the synagogue, they're amazed by Jesus' teaching, right? And part of the reason why was because of the content of his teaching. It isn't actually spelled out in the story that we're going to read. So put it, if we put all the parts of the story together, I think the content of the teaching was that Jesus was giving was about his own identity. His identity as God's anointed one, as God's beloved son, as we just heard at the baptism, seen a few passages back. His identity as the anointed one, as God's beloved son, and the one in whom the kingdom of God has come near. He was the embodiment of the kingdom of God. And so I think he was teaching about his identity in those ways. And because he's the anointed one, because he's God's beloved son, and because the kingdom of God has come near in him, he inherently has authority from God. His authority originates in and is derived from God himself. And this is different, the text says, than the scribes, those who gained authority from the religious establishment based on their ability to handle ancient texts and explain ancient texts and laws and traditions. And so when we read the Gospels, is that... <laughs> When we read the Gospels, um, the scribes, they're stereotyped as antagonists to Jesus. And as a result, they're outsiders wherever they go, at least from Mark's view, at least from Jesus' view. Whether it's in Jerusalem or in the Galilee, these scribes are depicted as outsiders. And in this, in this verse, Mark's rhetoric gives us a contrast of Jesus and the scribes that persists throughout the rest of the story. In fact, the way that Mark portrays the scribes is as a group of religious officials who are supposed to have this public and private authority. Yet everything they do in the story undermines that. Mark shows these religious officials maneuvering and manipulating and scheming and he exposes so much of it. They are plotters, the scribes. They are schemers, the scribes. And in my view, what we're about to read, we should read it 
in light of that. This is a setup story, y'all. It's a setup story. The scribes are trying to set Jesus up. As they'll repeat, and as they repeatedly will do, they'll repeatedly fail. Right? So we're going to continue. So look at the next bit. Mark says, and straight away there was in their synagogue a person with an unclean spirit. And he screamed, saying, we're going to get to what he screamed, saying, in a minute. But I want you to notice just a couple things here. Look what it says. It says, in their synagogue. In whose synagogue? In their synagogue. Whose synagogue? Who is the there here? Jesus and the four fishermen? Is it their synagogue? Jesus and everyone else there? Or everyone, unlike Jesus, who may not have been new there, like the locals? Or is it the synagogue of the scribes? Well, the last plural subject we had in the story was at the very end of the previous verse, literally the last two words, the scribes. So I think that's who, at this point, Mark is suggesting has ownership, so to speak, over this synagogue. And it could just as easily read like this. And then straight away, there was in the synagogue of those scribes a person with an unclean spirit, and he screamed, saying, and here's what we can't afford to miss. The scribes are purposefully connected to the unclean spirits. And it raises another question. If the synagogue is supposed to be a sacred place, why is there an unclean spirit, a demon, in it? (laughs) Isn't that a bit odd? Well, it's Mark's way of telling us that this synagogue has become corrupt. Just like we're going to read about the temple later in Mark's gospel. In fact, Mark will tell us in just a few verses that part of Jesus' mission is to go around the entire region to pop into all the synagogues and to do some house cleaning. Wouldn't we like to see Jesus do that to some churches today? (laughs) So honestly, I I don't think this is accidental. I think the scribes, they're portrayed as schemers. They are planted, or sorry, they are in the synagogue and they have planted a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. They have planted him there in an effort to try to set Jesus up, to trip Jesus up, to get him to say or do something that'll get him in trouble. Remember, John was in Herod Antipas' territory and he got in trouble for what he's saying and doing. And so if you don't like Jesus, what are you going to do too? You try to get him to say or do something that'll get him arrested as well. And you have to see the level of corruption here. These are supposed to be revered religious officials. But instead, they're corrupt. You you see, instead of helping this man, they use him as a nasty plot. Instead of them seeing Jesus' true identity, they despise Jesus. And instead of this being a sacred space, they turn it into a den of scheming and plotting, an unsacred space. Instead of this being a place of purity, they turn it into a place of impurity. Instead of it being a place of order, they turn it into a place of disorder. Instead of this being a place of covering and comfort, 
God's got us covered. It becomes a place of evil uncovered, exposed. And this will not be the only time they do this in Mark's story. They will plant more people in more synagogues and they will continue trying to trip Jesus up. Let's continue. Here's what the spirit, the unclean man, or the spirit inside the unclean man says, right? I don't know what tone to do this in, but what is it with us and you? Should I do it like that? Try to sound like a a demon? I don't know. What is it with us and you? Jesus, that hurts my throat. Jesus the Nazarene. Or we can make the demon like sound really wimpy. What is it with us and you, Jesus? Like, how do we, I don't know. I don't know what the demon sounds like, but what is it with us and you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? Do I know you? Who are you? The Holy One of God? So there are five questions here, this litany of questions. And the five questions, they go right to the heart of Jesus' identity. And the first one essentially asks, what do we have in common, Jesus? Jesus the Nazarene. And if you're tempted to ask, answer nothing, right? If you're tempted to answer nothing, that's probably wrong. Jesus and this evil spirit do have something in common or some things in common. They have at least a couple things in common. One, they both have an interest in people and places. You ever thought about that? And two, they both know Jesus' identity. Notice that the Spirit says, Jesus the Nazarene. He calls out where Jesus is from. He alludes to Jesus' hometown. This is another place mentioned. And of course, location is everything. So Nazareth, right? It's to the west of Capernaum, Kepharnachum. It's a much smaller town, a village, much smaller area. It was backwoods. They sang victory in Jesus' country like we did today, right? They were small like that. Uh, backwoods, nondescript. In my view, I think this evil spirit is essentially saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you don't belong here. You're from no good Nazareth, go back. And so the spirit asks, have you come to destroy us? And again, is he laughing? Is he, is he taunting? Is, how does he sound? What is his tone when he says this? Is he afraid? Because if you read this as the spirit being afraid, that's one thing. But if you read it as the spirit mocking Jesus, that's another thing. <laughs> have you come to destroy us? That's different than, have you, have you come to destroy us? Yeah, so how, how's he saying this? And he, so he's taking aim at Jesus' identity. Do I know you? Who are you? What are you about? What's your mission? And the, 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 the next question, these questions, right? It's, it's like he's trying to get Jesus to doubt himself. Do I know you? Again, it, it's, like, it's like a way of saying uh, what we hear the people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth saying later in Mark 6. Hey, isn't this just Mary's son? You know, isn't this just the son of the carpenter born out of wedlock to a handyman? 
Do I know you? You're from backwoods Nazareth. Who would know you? Do I know you? Because I don't think anyone really knows you, Jesus. And it's followed up with, who are you? Another quick jab, implying probably you're a nobody. And the final one, are you the Holy One of God? Again, what's the tone with which this is said? It's hard not, it's hard not to imagine that he's mocking him here. What would a holy person be doing in the presence of an unclean spirit after all? And what would a holy one be doing in a synagogue run by people like the scribes who planted me here? Are you a holy one too, just like they're holy ones? Are you working too with my leader? And so you see the evil spirit, he goes right for Jesus's identity and he tries to get Jesus to question himself who he is, what he's doing, where he's from, whether he's good enough, what he's all about, whether he's a nobody, whether he's really holy, whether he's different from the other religious officials and so on. And here's what I tell you, the easiest way to shake someone's Christianity, go after their identity. In fact, it's just the easiest way to shake someone in general, get them to question who they are, and what they're about. In our culture today, that's what identity politics is all about. It's trying to confuse people and convince them that there's something they're not. Our universities, they are one of the main systems doing this. And the media is a major pusher of this. Those two forces wield a lot of power in our society, the way we've set it up and structured it. And they're confusing the crap out of people, especially our young people. They're confusing them about their faith, their sexuality, their gender, their morals, their politics, and so much more. Uh, There's a student who used to attend this school, Radford here, um, that I knew. And a student who had been raised uh, in what appeared to be a Christian home was befriended by some in the gay and transgender crowd here. They have a club for that. And within several weeks of being befriended by them, this student became an ally of the cause. Joined the club, became an ally of the cause. And then within weeks of that, the student began dressing the part and cutting hair the part. And within weeks of that, the students started to question their own identity. Am I a boy or am I a girl or am I gender fluid? And within weeks of that, was identifying as gay. And a couple of weeks later, the student was identifying as trans. And depending on the week following that, the student's identity changed. And it created in this student and the student's family just a lot of heartache and and chaos and disorder. And you see, if you can get people to begin questioning who they are, their identity, you can shake their entire world, their entire being. That's why it's so imperative that we are firmly rooted in Christ and that we are about deep study so that we are not shaken. 
rooted so deeply and firmly that no matter what comes, nothing shakes us. That's why it takes surrounding ourselves with people like that so that if we ever do start to have questions, we got some brothers and sisters we can go to, aunties and uncles we can go to, who would tell us the truth, even if that truth hurts, even if it's hard truth, and they can help guide us. Get a person to question who they are, and you've taken the first step to convincing them who you think they should be. It's the great deceit of our age, of our time. Ask someone, so what's at the core of your identity? And within seconds, you'll learn tons about them. Sometimes you don't even need to ask. Their outward appearance shows it. And please hear me when I say this. As long as I am at the Bridge Church of the Nazarene, we will not subscribe to identity politics. We will not play that game. We will root our identity in Christ, period. And as the praise song says, I am who you say I am. I'm a child of God. That's my identity. That's our starting point. Because any other starting point, any other starting point invites chaos and disorder into our lives. That's the truth. If this evil spirit could have shaken Jesus, He did just what he was supposed to do. Ask questions that had him rethinking or doubting his identity. And so in Kafar Nahum, covering village, comfort village, protection village, God does have Jesus covered. The Father has Jesus covered. Nevertheless, some, like the scribes, succumb. Their identity is rooted in the wrong thing, and that's what Mark is telling us. And so I ask you today, what's the core, the heartbeat, the centerpiece of your identity? Or rather, who is at the core, the heart, the center of your identity? It's maybe the most important question for anyone. Maybe the most important question we could ever ask or answer. So what say ye? Let's keep reading. Here's the next verse. And Jesus rebuked him, that is the evil spirit. And Jesus said, be silent and come out of him. And after the unclean spirit shook him, and after he sounded a great sound, he exited out of him. And so Jesus rebukes this spirit. And I'll just say, sometimes we need to do that. Um... While Satan can certainly operate from a distance, from behind bars, as it were, there's certainly still evil spirits, like this one, at work in our world. And later in Mark, Jesus will set his disciples loose to do the same things that he does with rebukings and healings and exorcisms and teachings and baptisms. Here's something else. You notice how easy this was for Jesus. (laughs) he wasn't scared he wasn't afraid he wasn't shaken and I mean just a handful of verses back Jesus takes Satan on in the wilderness for 40 days 
And obviously, he's victorious in that. And so are we really to think, as we're getting into the story here, that in this synagogue, when Jesus is faced by an unclean spirit, he stands a chance of losing? It's almost as if Mark has primed us to laugh at this, almost like this is a punchline. This is obviously, absolutely no match for Jesus, who's already victorious and has been since the incarnation. And Jesus gives a simple order, be silent and come out of him. I would love to hear the tone of that too. Does Jesus just whisper, silence, come out of him? Does Jesus get loud? Is Jesus laughing? Like, what's he doing? How does he say this? We'll talk more about Jesus silencing people and spirits in the future, but I want to point out here that none of the spirits attempts to gain control over Jesus' work, whether it's through questioning, through put-downs, or striving to cause doubt in Jesus. None of it works. Jesus is solid. And here's our example of how we, too, should be solid. When we get challenged or questioned or put down or have doubts cast upon us for who we are or what we believe or what we stand for, we just keep our rootedness. Keep our rootedness about us. Lean into the brothers and sisters we know that can help us. The spirit, this evil spirit, it obeys Jesus. Not immediately, but it does. Instead of being silently right away, it shakes the dude and then screams. But eventually it obeys Jesus. And then the spirit seems to just vanish. I don't know where he goes. We're not told. We don't know. Later in Mark's gospel, uh, the evil spirits, they always are wanting to go into the water. The lake which was viewed as a proper place for them under the water, a sort of gateway to the underworld in Jewish thought. Let's keep going. Look at this. And they were all amazed so as to discuss among themselves, saying, the congregants say this, what is this? A new teaching? According to what authority? He even commands the unclean spirits and they obey him? And so everyone's sitting in a synagogue listening to Jesus teach about his identity. And off to the side, we have the interruption. The, the, the man that the scribes planted in the synagogue, he has an, un, uh, an evil spirit, and it speaks through him. Jesus rebukes it and silences it, orders it to leave, and it does. Game over. And in that moment, just like the evil spirit had asked five questions, the congregants also asked five questions. And here's something important. Their questions are coming from a place of proper reverence and awe. So they're asking these questions, not in an attempt to trick Jesus or trip him up. They ask because they genuinely want to know. And they ask because this is a game-changing moment for them in this town, in this synagogue. Their questions are related to Jesus' identity in some ways. It's as if they already actually accept Jesus for who he said he was. God's anointed, God's beloved son, and the one in whom the kingdom has come near. It's like they've already agreed to all that. And they go on to ask about what they've just seen. They, they don't begin by asking, who is this? Who are you? Where are you from? But they say, what is this? What is this? What is this? 
They want to know what just happened. And, and why? why? Why did this just happen? Because it legitimates or sheds light on Jesus' new teaching. How is what just happened related to Jesus' new teaching? The teaching about his identity, in other words. Well, the exorcism is proving that he is who he says he is. Israel's kings and priests were anointed figures. And as we learned last week, Jesus is the new and last Adam. He has overcome Satan. He's overcome all these evil spirits. He's God's blessed son who after his baptism defeated Satan in the wilderness. And clearly, this exorcist, this healer, has shown proof of the reign of the kingdom of God coming near in him. It's near to everyone in that synagogue. And they've never been this close in their lives to the kingdom of God. They can literally reach out and touch it. They say, what according to what authority is he doing this? The religious officials later in the story asked Jesus the same exact thing. And again, it shows a connection between them and the evil spirits, the scribes. But Jesus' authority is, as we said, derived directly from God. That who has authorized him. And yes, he even commands the unclean spirits and they obey. Yes. And so in an instant, impurity becomes purity in this place. Chaos becomes calm in this place and disorder becomes order in this place. Here's the last verse. And the report went out, uh, and the report about him went out straight away everywhere into the whole surrounding region of the Galilee. After these events, not surprisingly, a report goes out. Where does it go? You see it here. Everywhere to the whole surrounding region of the Galilee. The evil spirit, you'll remember, had criticized Jesus for being in Capernaum instead of being back home in Nazareth. He was telling Jesus, go back to Podunk Nazareth. No good Nazareth. Backwoods Nazareth. Go back to where you belong. And instead, Jesus just like this report about this event, will end up going out into all the Galilee and the surrounding regions. And what will he do? He'll preach the gospel, care for the poor, care for the sick. He'll bring calm to chaos and order to disorder. In fact, much of why Jesus does what he does is for that very reason, to upend disorder, to replace disorder with order. And let me tell you, that's good news. That's good news. That's really good news. Jesus has come to bring order. It's more than a healing. Yes, a man was healed, yes. But it's so much more. Don't miss it. The synagogue was healed too. And both the man and the synagogue, they were part of society. And so the seemingly tiny act in Comfort Village is a step in the right direction toward healing society itself, you see. One changed life, one changed house of worship, bleeds out into society, a report goes out, and society itself is starting to feel the effects of that change and benefit from that change. 
This is more than a healing, a single healing. This is another instantiation of Jesus' already claimed victory. And it's a victory story, a story of healing and hope. Because if we're willing, just like this, Jesus can and will bring order to our disorder too. It may not happen instantly. It may happen over time. But listen, he's the source of it. When I get stressed out, I was really stressed out this week. When I get stressed out, when I get worried, man, I try to start instantly fixing things. I start trying to make them better. And so many times, I get in my own way. I get in God's way. And I frustrate his plans. And instead of seeking him first, instead of asking for his guidance first, I just insert myself into the picture almost as if I'm God myself. I'll take care of it. Anybody relate? So what are we to do? It's the same thing I've been telling y'all for three years since I showed up here. Yield. Yield your life to him. Yield your worries to him. Yield your concerns to him. And if nothing seems to happen, just keep yielding. Because the minute you let up, you may be stepping in God's way and frustrating God's plans. We're just to maintain a posture of yielding. Surrender. Each time something confronts us, let's go to sort of a metaphorical Capernaum comfort village, protection village, where we know God's got us covered. Maybe you're experiencing some chaos right now. I know some of y'all are. I can't tell you how to solve it. I can tell you how to address it. Yield. Period. You want the disorder in your life to become order? Just got to yield. You want that feeling of hopelessness to become hope? Then just yield. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired? Yield. Feeling like the world's against you? Yield. Feeling like problem after problem after problem's never going to stop? Yield. Feeling overwhelmed? Yield. You want some victory in your life? Yield. It's simple. Our bottom line for this week, yield. One word. Yield your life, your relationships, your job, your finances, your health. Yield it all, surrender it all. That doesn't mean that, you know, when you give something up to God, when you let go of it, you're not just giving it all to him and putting it all on him. What we're doing when we surrender and we yield is we're giving God access to it. And we work in conjunction with God. So maybe you got a relationship that needs some fixing. Will you yield that? You surrender that. It doesn't mean you're giving up the relationship or not going to work at it anymore. It means you're giving God access to it. 
and that you're going to work with him on it. It's not as very simple to say, not always simple to do. But do it, we must. Yield. Today, just yield. Tonight, yield. This week, yield. If you're smart, when you're coming up, right, if you're smart, when you're coming up to an intersection or a crossroads, you yield. You slow down. You pause. You look all directions, hopefully. You observe. You notice your surroundings. You pay attention. And it's the same in your spiritual life, your spiritual walk. You observe. You notice your surroundings. You pay attention. When you come to a crossroads and it's time to make a decision, when you come to an intersection, pause. Take notice of where God may be, where God may be present, where God may be at work, what he may be trying to say. Sometimes God may even be trying really hard to get our attention. He may be like jumping out into the intersection right in front of us. And we just don't see. Or maybe we do see. And sometimes, sadly, you know what we do? We're just running right over. Running right over with our plans. We just plow right over them. We drive around them. Don't even notice them. But if you're smart, when it's time to do anything, especially make a choice or make a decision or whatever, slow it down, pause, look around, try to spot God. Where's he at in the mix? Because he's somewhere. And then after yielding, you don't just run him over. You don't just go around him, swerve around him. You don't just ignore him. You follow. You follow his lead. Yielding and following go hand in hand. And so today, as you leave, don't just look both ways. Look all ways. Seek God. Yield. Amen.